Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Starving for Insight. Uh, today I'm joined by Thibaut over at Adobe. And Thibaut, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing over there? Hey, sure. Uh, thanks, Ashley. So first, uh, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's very, uh, I'm very honored. Quick intro on me. I, uh, I've been at Adobe for about 10 years now and uh, started as a, uh, as a sales, uh, sales engineer and then moved to product management and recently moved into uh, growth, which is kind of the blend of marketing and product and, and data. And, uh, and before that, I was a, uh, a developer, an engineer. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much my background. No, thank you. Yes. So one of the reasons I really wanted to have uh, Thibaut on here today is he wrote this uh, series of blog posts for Growth Hackers. It was called uh, The Complete Guide to Building Customer Empathy. And our mutual friend, Danny, had sent it to me and said, this is awesome. You have to read this. And I saw you gave a talk on it on Growth Hackers as well. And it was great. You're doing some really interesting stuff over there at Adobe. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about the customer empathy framework? and telling the listeners a little bit about it, perhaps they haven't seen it before? Yeah, sure. So really, it started as a conversation with with other people about what we talk a lot about growth and, and, and the data and, and what kind of like the hacks, what has worked, the tactics. But what I wanted to do is go back to a topic that we often don't really, that's not really discussed heavily in the community, at least it hasn't been uh, so far that much is it's really the, the empathy and and why why do we do the things we do and how do we actually put the voice of the customer back in the center of everything we do because I, I really believe that it starts everything starts with empathy uh, I don't I don't think you can be a good product leader or marketer or um, you know customer support or anyone that's working on a product has to have that empathy and really understand the problem that the customers have and so the the goal of that, that article was to walk people through, the process and how do you develop a framework so that you put that voice of the customer back in the center of your organization so that as much as possible, uh, that voice is exposed because often it, it really helps everyone go back to the foundation, the basics. Everyone has an opinion, but really at the end of the day, it goes back to, to the customer, the problem they have and how they feel about your product. That is so well said. I, I'm really curious because I'm asked this sometimes too, and I don't have a great answer for it. But how do you define customer empathy? Yeah, that's a good question. I think customer empathy for me is being embedded within the problems that people have in their everyday life and, and understanding why your product is making their life easier and better and, and really, really blend with the users in the sense that it's not you pretending that you're, you know, like, oh, I'm going to talk to some customers today and, you know, I'm going to get a feel of what it is to use my product. It's actually you becoming a user of your product, be, becoming part of the community and, and, and really feeling the pain that the customers have yourself so that you can have, ha- you can have as much authenticity as possible when you also talk to customers because customers will feel how much how much do you know about the space? How much do you know about the problem? And if you if you come off as, you know, a little bit like external to the thing or like not even knowing how to use your own product, it really it really falls down. And for me, 
I've been in, in, you know, I've been in meetings, I've seen meetings, I've been in, in conversations where a lot of people have opinions, but a lot of these people um, might not have used the product at all. And I say, it's so critical that everyone who voices an opinion on the roadmap, the marketing, anything about the product is using the product every day. And for me, customer empathy is, is really, really blending uh, with the users in an, an authentic way. And and being that constant voice of the customer in your organization. Because a lot of the conversation and the, the battles I've had on my product career is uh, the voice of the customer is always what gets people back to the right track in the sense that, okay, that's how people feel. It's not me with an ego or me with a title or the loudest person in the room. Uh, when people hear what people say about the product, it, it generally has a dramatic impact on on people's emotions in the team and, and wanting to build a better product. So many interesting takeaways there. So I'm just going to kind of part and parcel some of them. I have to ask first, how do you, like what tips or advice do you have from your experience actually serve as the voice of customer in your organization? That's always one people struggle with. And I think you have such an interesting take on this. Yeah. So for me, actually, it starts, like I said, with the first step of the framework is really becoming a user and uh, and from marketing to product managers to engineers is and it starts with the hiring process. You know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, we really have to hire someone. Well, you know, that person's not really a fit. Yet. It's all right. We need hands. No, no, no. You need to have people set the bar high because everyone needs to really understand the product, understand the space or if they don't know the product which is totally fine, but you don't show up at an interview to work on a product without having used the product. It's a showstopper. It's, it's always been for me crazy to show up at an interview and, oh, have you used our product? Oh, no, not, not really. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the wrong start. So it started by becoming a user, hiring the right people with the right enthusiasm and curiosity. And, uh, and, and for me, it starts there. And then through the entire process around uh, and on the framework that I'm covering, it's really about then understanding the users and uh, their early adopters, the people that will become your power users, trying to understand who are they and, and what they do. And then you really kind of start seeding kind of like a community and, and really blend uh, within that community because that's how you learn a lot about the competition because your early adopters generally are people that have used other products because they're always kind of like on kind of like, you know, kind of like tip of spear in the sense that they always try the new things. And so they're trying your product. They can tell you what's hot in the space. And so you can learn a ton. And then once you, once you have that, obviously the, the biggest, uh, the most important thing is understanding uh, the people that are not using your product. So there's a large part of users that will come to your product and they'll leave. And, uh, and it's tempting to just go and talk to the people that love your product. It's gratifying. There's a little bit of an, an ego boost. And it's okay, but it's really important that you, you start talking to the people that have churned and, and really try to understand what's happening. And so there's um, this entire loop uh, that uh, I cover through the framework where you go through these steps. And what you try to do is all these learnings, all these insights, all these conversations should not happen in a vacuum with a salesperson and a marketing person and a PM uh, going into meetings in a closed room and sharing, you know, Evernote's notes to a Slack channel. It, it's not that. I mean, it is literally opening um, the community and have that at the center of the, the, the organization by having external customers in your Slack channel uh, with a channel like, you know, VOC, Voice of the Customer, where 
People can see support questions. People can see um, maybe a Facebook group and invite all the engineers to a Facebook group where um, you can you can see all the conversations uh, from your users and really make this entire flow of, of feedback and, and empathy be part of everyday uh, of, of the of, of the team in their everyday work. It, it shouldn't be an effort to go listen to the voice of the customer, listen to a recording. No, no, it's part of your feed. It's part of your everything you do. Uh, and that's, I think, where magic happens because then that empathy is in the center of the organization. There's so much actionable stuff in there. I'm just going to try to sum it up and you can let me know if I've kind of got it. So empathy, you know, that's the center of everything. We've talked about product, a lot of product examples. Would you agree it's also for marketing um, and growth as well? Or do you find empathy is more important in product? Yeah, no, I think it's for everything, Ashley. And and, and that's something I'm trying to really uh, emphasize when I when I talk about that, that product and marketing is uh, is, is to me the same thing. Uh, it's, it's a marketing is an extension of your product experience. Uh, we live in a world where, uh, every, every touch point, everything you say, whether it's on, the, on, on the landing page in the product, on the retargeting Facebook campaign or whatever on social, everything you say needs to have a soul, a, uh, a, uh, sound authentic. And then, so I think it's, it's extremely important that, uh, it's, it's for the, it's for the entire organization. No, I couldn't agree more. So it starts with empathy. The very first place it starts with you is who you hire. So it sounds like you're a fan of the school of thought, you know, hire slow, fire fast. And hmm. have to find if people come in and they've never used your product, that's a deal breaker for you. So that's kind of one of your gatekeepers when you're hiring. Right. And then after you kind of, you really get into, you know, working with the users and all of those qualitative things, which we can talk about in more detail, also equally important and it sounds like that's a place where you think people often miss and i see that as well people who don't talk to their sorry people who don't use your product and I'll, i'm gonna continue if you want kind of like the, the next steps of, of, yes. the, of the whole the whole process so you 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 just mentioned talk to the churn users that's the, the kind of the fourth step of, of the loop is uh, talking to these users and and again here often when you work in big companies or it doesn't have to be, you know, Fortune 500, but as startups grow, it's tempting to, you know, outsource that stuff to other, you know, maybe teams or even like uh, third party or outsource it. And, and you lose, you lose that, uh, you lose that connection. You make it, you make it uh, something that is um, kind of like a, something on the side that's not really part of what the team does and and so i really encourage my 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 team uh growth teams working at adobe who work on products to to really go and meet the customer uh face to face and this is something that we uh we uh, we uh, we got inspired by what intuit did a long time ago uh, they call it uh, follow me home where the founder was asking people uh on the the parking lot of you know supermarkets like how do they actually file their taxes and he was basically asking them hey can you actually show me what you're going through and 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 i thought that's kind of like product management like one-on-one -on -one, but but sometimes we you, you forget to do these things you're like well you know let's fire a um you know a zoom conference call and then we'll call we'll sky that person yeah you can absolutely do this and you should and it's great but you know what i've observed is that it makes some, some, such a huge difference to actually meeting people in person. And I know you might hear, well, it's, that's not scalable. It's not 
it's not that you just do that, but you need to do it in addition to the digital stuff you do, the surveys and the, the conversations on, 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 on Zoom and other, other, other services. But meeting your user in person where you go and you meet the, this person who's trying to use your product in an RV in Ohio and you're, you live in the bubble in Silicon Valley on a $2,000 computer and you think, well, you know, uh, I don't understand. I, 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 you know, I don't understand why these people are churning. And you might discover that a lot of, of our, your users actually have a slow connection. They have a completely different way of using technology. But you cannot feel these things until you actually meet the person, see their environment, and 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 build empathy and understand how they work. And and this seeing the person, meeting the person uh, for real, uh, makes a huge impact on the team. Uh, it's not a it's not a note that you're sharing on Slack. It's like, oh my god, we went to see you know Jenny last week in uh, uh, in Nevada, and she's working. You know, she's doing this this job, and she's using our product at night. She's got one hour because she's she's got a yoga school, and then she needs uh, and and basically and and it makes it makes such a huge difference when you actually meet people in person. Um, so that's something I really encourage uh, my team to do, and we do that for every single product. Okay, so that's I think that's huge. So I think a couple of things you suggested before that I wanted to highlight is you mentioned you know empathy. The really magic is when you don't have to think about empathy. So a couple of quick ways you do that is you have you invite your external customers into one of your company internal Slack channels, and you have a Facebook group, and you can also invite the engineers and anyone else to be part of that group. And that, I believe that group for you is a kind of a community group for members or a VIP group. Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of the excuse. Is it a user research group? Do they know it's a user research group, or is it a VIP group for the Slack and the Facebook group? No, and that's a good question. What uh, what we've done is two things. One is we've have a we we set up Facebook groups where uh, there's a, a kind of an insider group which is for VIP. We invite really our power users and most our ambassadors, and so that's a pool of users that we grow, we nurture. They're special in the sense that they're um, they're the kind of like the power users, and we uh, we obviously um, uh, work with them in terms of beta, getting feature feedback, but also yeah, it's an amazing stream of 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 conversations to really understand how they think and the problems they go through and then uh obviously what's dangerous is that you start developing a product only for these users and then you end up completely missing the big opportunity you might have 2000 early adopters that are like uh, highly retained uh, but you might have 150,000 churn users uh, and then you're completely missing the opportunity, which is you should be actually talking you should be talking to your churn users so what we do we also have global community group where it's a welcome to everyone and and teams can kind of like do the things uh, that they feel is best but um, we have both so that you can also see both sides of of the coin i i think that's huge so you can really bias yourself if you're only doing one but to have both correct and is your is your slack channel also for vip insiders how do you frame that so I haven't done that personally in our growth initiatives, the the, the Slack stuff. Uh, we've had we have product teams that have done it, invite uh, people on Slack. We've done experiments where we have um, people coming over in Slack and doing daily challenges where we have people sign up for two weeks and then they go on Slack and we have coach uh, and trainers coach them and and teach them how to use the product really kind of like high touch wide globe experience and of course uh, for product teams that are building new products or shipping new new features uh, we've had teams do that there's no standardized way to do it but uh, it's pretty common 
Yeah, no, thank you for digging in there. And I have to go into your next batch of valuable insights now. I just, those are two really actionable suggestions that I really wanted to highlight. So when it comes down to what you talked, you know, you have to see the customer in person. A Zoom call, you know, a video conference call that's good and, you know, surveys and, you know, our quantitative, qualitative research is good as well. But you have to complement from in your opinion and your advice is complement that with an in-person visit. Right. Because there's so much context, it sounds like, that you're missing if you don't go in person that can't even be replaced with a video call. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much local, regional, cultural context. If you're if you're scaling your product to go in in India, in Japan, or in uh, in France or wh- whatever region of the world, and you're developing this product, you know, in the Silicon Valley or in a city, and where y- you are not the user. Clearly, you have to go and be with the community, be with the users, embed yourself, and 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 even better, hire people that are from these different uh, regions to really help you build a product that really. Uh, resonates and 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 feels right for everyone. You need to build a product for everyone, not just for you know the the people around you. No, I think that's so well said. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to. And I think you said this: USA versus Japan. It's you know San Francisco versus Nevada. It's right. San Francisco versus San Jose. San Jose versus you know LA or another small town. Um, right. It's very the context. I think that's huge. If you don't mind me asking, how many times per year or your team per year generally do you try to meet with customers in person at their locations? So we we generally try to do it. So for instance, for the Follow Me Home example, um, we're trying to do it every time we kick off kind of like new new ideation, new um, new ideation process where Right now, to be honest with you, it's we're not setting a specific cadence, but probably like three times a year going, uh, maybe like once a quarter, basically, we're trying to go and visit customers to, to really, you know, go there also trying to answer some, some key questions that are really more sometimes higher level. And, and, and so sometimes it's very tactical, sometimes it's just more and more high level but yeah once a quarter is kind of like the cadence we're looking at right now and uh and obviously every product team at adobe has done this uh for years it's just that from a growth standpoint i really want to make sure that again when we think about growth it's tempting to think about marketing tactics and all these things but for me growth is an extension of product it starts with a great product and so it's important that everyone that works in growth has a deep, deep understanding of the product because that's also a great way to build uh, that empathy, that social capital with the product team. When you you go to the product team and you say, hey, we're going to actually run an experiment inside your onboarding and we're going to try this, the product team has to feel like you understand the product, you understand the users and you understand what you're doing or there's going to be this natural antibodies rejection where, okay, here come the marketers with their, you know, stuff it's spammy whatever so it, it's extremely important to have that um that history uh and baggage with you so that you have that trust yeah no i think that's so well said one of the things you mentioned a bit earlier is again you know definitely a gatekeeper when hiring is have the use of product before walking that interview but in general i believe your philosophy and the teams is you know you have to be use, a users of the product first 
how do you guard against the bias that happens? And you mentioned this in the framework as well, that your your customer isn't necessarily an engineer living in Silicon Valley. So how you use the product and how someone else uses the product is different. Yeah. So I I think again it's um, it's it's trying to and it's a very good point. It, it's it's often it happens right. You 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 hire and you there's some bias in your hiring. You uh, you might be tempted to hire people that are really strong technically or or but actually you realize that these people are actually not bringing a different perspective on cultures or psychology or things like that. And so. What, what I think is important and we're trying to do is, again, be diverse in your hiring. Also challenge yourself with hiring people that, for me, when I hire for growth, I don't hire for um, necessarily the skills. Like, is that person, I'm hiring for capabilities and is that person capable of, of getting the insights and of getting the skills? But the most important thing is the mindset. Uh, often I say, you know, you you can't, I can teach you, I can teach you SQL or Hadoop, or I can teach you statistics, but I can't teach you to not be a jerk, right? Like uh, it's a, it's something that is very important. You can't change people. And so it's, it's so important that you hire people where you feel like they can also challenge themselves and understand and be self-aware of that bias. So you're coming in, you, you make that much money. We all live in a bubble here. We're going to be building this product for everyone. The world is not us. And how do you? How are you going to go uh, to build a product? And I think it's important that you have people that, even if they are not necessarily representative of all the people, that because it's impossible. You're not going to have you know your team made of every member of every country in the world. It doesn't make sense. But it's really self awareness and and people understanding how to fill the gaps by challenging themselves. Yeah, no, I, again, that's, you know, very well said. And I think one of the things that you built in the process automatically is by doing those in-person customer visits and um, video calls and things as well, but really those in-person visits really helps give that context too, I'm sure, to the team that they are not the user and remind them of that. Exactly. So one of the things I really wanted to chat with you about, and so this, what we're talking about is right now you're the head of growth, I believe, for Adobe Cloud. So Creative Cloud, which is a lot of different products in one. Uh, but when you created this framework for Adobe and it was so successful, um, this was for Adobe Spark. And based on the success, you're now the director of growth of the whole cloud. So you're transitioning it from basically a startup within a big company to more organization-wide, which is a huge challenge. And I definitely want to make sure we talk about that. But one quick thing I want to talk about first in our pre-game kind of chat, I always kind of ask, you know, what's you know a, a good insights story that you'd like to share um, and you mentioned, you're like, well, it would be okay if I talked about one of my mistakes. And I was like, that would be the best thing ever. It's very satisfying to talk in, to talk about the things that work great. It's uh, it's really kind of like a vanity thing. It's great. Uh, you talk about, you know, all the amazing things and hacks with things that has, have worked. And, and that's great. And honestly, I'll admit it. I love reading these blog posts. We all do. Uh, they work really well, I'm sure, in terms of traffic. But uh, I was tempted to, you know, create a... A website literally like 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 failure of growth or things like that you know it's, it's probably a terrible marketing strategy uh, in the name but uh, I think ultimately you learn from from failing and in growth most of what we do is is failing 
but the, the whole point is failing quickly so that you can learn from that. And then you sometimes have some home runs. And, uh, and so what I wanted to, to share with the, with your audience, uh, listening to the podcast is, uh, I've done a lot of mistakes and one of them was, so, you know, for instance, let's talk about spark. Spark is a really interesting product that Adobe, uh, we created a few years back and the, the whole vision was and still is to go um, and reach a broader audience, the people that don't necessarily have the skills to learn professional tools. I take the example of that yoga coach in Nevada. She has one hour in the evening to create a newsletter or create a graphic for Instagram. She is, you know, an entrepreneur. She's a, she's working, she's doing everything by herself. And you're, you, you can't have her, you know, pick a book uh, for Photoshop and then learn Photoshop for a month. Most of these people will say, what is the quick way from my mobile phone or on the go on my commute to actually do that stuff? And so we had to step back and think about different products. And when we we created Spark, um, uh, I I was a product manager. I was building Spark Post, which is this uh, um, graphic, uh, graphic app to create basically images for social media. And I realized quickly that uh, we needed to do growth because there was a lot of questions Going, coming to my mind, I didn't have answers. And it was a lot of the data, more of the quant, because I was very deep in quant, but not enough in quant. And um, my, my, my general manager back then, who really trusted the process and really invested in growth, and uh, I think he's, um, he's a big part in actually having Adobe uh, invest in growth because he gave me that chance to actually build a growth team inside Spark. But uh, I, and I told him back then I didn't have the framework. I didn't have the the process to do work, to do growth in a scientific way. I had the empathy, I had the passion, I had a lot of the skills, but I didn't have the, the framework to really focus on the right things, had to, had to really do growth and build a growth machine. And so I can give you some examples, but for instance, one of the biggest mistakes was uh, thinking that uh, you, know, you can just do growth by attacking uh, attacking from the outside by just looking at tactics. You know, oh, I read this great article about push notifications. We should probably do push notifications. And you're like, well, yeah. I mean, it's it's yes, push notifications do help. But what is that? Is that the most important thing to do? And second, what is really your your framework for implementing that? How you do make it so that really you're going to have the biggest impact? So I, I did the mistake of running towards the tactics. And I think a lot of us in growth, when you start, you do the same thing. And then uh, second was really not being able to prioritize you know, the, 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 the right things. So one of the things that I learned from Brian Balfour uh, from Reforge is, uh, is really this quote that I love. You really want to change the culture, the mindset to stop thinking about is this going to work? But you want people to think in your team, is it worth doing? And, and, and that, that's so important. Like, is this, yeah, it might work. Push notifications might work. But is it really what we should be doing right now? Is that the biggest opportunity? So I didn't have these pieces. And so when I moved to Creative Cloud uh, and the VP uh, of Creative Cloud Marketing told me, do you want to, we'd love to have you do growth. I didn't have that framework, but I was like, oh man, this is a fantastic opportunity. I just can't say no. This was super scary, but I said yes. And then for the past nine months, I, I've been really being much more scientific about this and developing a framework so that we can do growth for 20 products on the portfolio. And when you, when you build 
a growth machine for 20 products on a $5 billion ARR business, you can't just go with, you know, throw stuff at the wall and say, hey, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? You have hundreds of people on the field asking you, what should be we what should we be focusing on? So you really need to be developing a framework that you can give to your team and say, this is how we're going to operate and this is how we're going to scale. Otherwise, it's just chaos. So many great things to unpack there. Uh, just first, for those who don't know, if quant and qual, quant is quantitative data, so our, kind of our hard numbers and qualitative is, more, is qualitative research. Uh, just kind of a quick note there. So sounds like, and you're in the middle of this right now, you had, sounds like you were, you, you took on this new role and you had the, the, the skills that you can't teach and you're building this framework from scratch. And I'd love to learn a little bit more about that and how you're getting buy-in for this somewhat new type of thinking mm-hmm. um, as well. And that quote from Brian, uh, he's a, he writes some pr- pretty prolific essays online. They're great. He's the former uh, head of growth for HubSpot as well. That quote, I haven't heard that. I think that's fantastic. It's a really good frame of reference. Not, you know, will it work? Is it worth doing? Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about, you know, you know, taking what worked and kind of in the startup and then now getting buy-in and expanding and building that framework from scratch and, you know, how you still manage to keep the empathy alive now when you're doing it to the cost of 20 products and a $5 billion, you know, revenue for your organization. Yeah. So, so really, and, that, and you touch on something that's extremely important, uh, and, and I mentioned quickly, you need to have executive buy-in because growth is something that's still new you, when you hire a product management. Like if you create a new, a new startup and you tell your, your, you know, your board, we're going to have product managers, you know, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, no one's going to challenge that. But when you say we're going to have you know, also a team with engineers, data scientists, and, and marketers, and they're called, it's called growth, Maybe in the valley, it's like, yeah, okay, of course you need a growth team. That's hot. And people, and, and actually one of the mistakes is to have a growth team where you don't even have product market fit when it's too early. But uh, in other regions of the world, it's just like, let's say Europe, it, uh, it's probably a little bit less common. And so you, you want to, uh, and, and I would even argue even in Silicon Valley, you know, there's still a lot of companies would say, what is growth? Like, don't we already do that? Oh, you mean it's marketing, right? It's marketing and product. Everyone's doing growth. Every, every, everyone should be thinking about growth. That's also another one you'll hear is that, what are you talking about? You're talking about experimentation and building a great product and fixing all these problems. Like we have a marketing team, we have a product team. They all do that every day. They live and breathe growth. Well, the, the, the thing is, and that's something we've had in, in, in one of the deck that we shared with our executives, if everyone uh, says that they, they're doing growth, the reality is that no one is really doing it because it, it, you don't really have a team that's accountable. So when things fail, it's not really anyone's fault. It's, well, okay. And, and, and the problem is that it's not even exciting uh, or, or you know, rewarding because you don't have uh, kind of like a a goal and you don't really have really clear goals. So really what in what it in Spark, I, like I said, my, my boss back then, general manager of Spark, said, hey, we're going to do growth and I'm going to give you a small team with one designer, a few engineers, and 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 let's see, let's see how this has how this is going. But before we got to that, what triggered him to give us some people was that I myself as a product manager, I was doing growth uh, without that that title. Uh, without that mandate, but I was getting basically one engineer and and myself to do some tweaks in the product that triggered some question and curiosity from management. Like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, what if we did? What if we did more of that? And and that's really what I encourage my 
my growth leads when when we start and you know, let's say you create a growth team for a new product or an existing product let's say let's say photoshop huge brand huge 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 product and then you create a new growth team i encourage uh, i encourage recently in my growth lead i said make sure you start focusing on the low hanging fruits it's it's so critical that you don't set a north star that's really impossible to to reach because um, there's going to be lo- you're going to lose the momentum people are going to start losing faith and interest the team is going to start p- asking questions like is that really the thing i want to be part of so you really want to start focusing on low hanging fruits i would say even borderline vanity metrics but at least prove out the velocity and the fact that the team is able to execute extremely quickly so you really you prove out the velocity and you say, hey, with that velocity we can we can we can figure out the right focus and framework, and then you want basically executive to say, hey, show me show me what you got. I'll give you one more one more person and come back in, in a few weeks. And so really it starts with getting your quick wins. No, I think that's huge, and I think that applies to bringing any two new type of thinking or philosophy or way of working. And we're talking specifically about growth and customer empathy, but it's counterintuitive to a lot of advice that people would tell you in your own experience in terms of focusing on metrics that matter versus even perhaps focusing on vanity metrics in the beginning just to have that POC, that proof of concept. Right. Um, I think that's not something you hear a lot, and I think that's a huge win for anyone trying to get you know, buy-in for a new type of initiative or methodology, regardless of whether it's customer empathy or growth. Yeah. I think that's really great advice there. I don't want to keep you too long because I know you have a big presentation today uh, to the executive team, but I do want to ask you quickly, this has been so full of so many great tidbits of actionable information, but a little bit more on the personal side. Can you tell me like maybe a little bit more about how you go through a process of making decisions, any criteria or sort of habits that you use when it comes to making decisions that you can share? Yeah, and I wish I had a very smart answer to this. Uh, I, <laughs> I'll just say that uh, what I've learned in the past years, especially building a team and having more people working uh, in my team reporting to me, is that the first thing I ask myself now is, do I need to take this decision? Uh, because my role ultimately is to take less decisions, but smarter ones. And uh, and it's tempting, especially when you're new to management, to not let go of that. And so you're, you're, you still want to control a little bit of everything. So you're like, hey, we're going to do this. But actually, you have very smart people working for you. And it's not really uh, it's not really um, encouraging. You need to give people space to grow and develop. So you're going to get a lot of social capital and trust uh, by actually letting your team take some, make, uh, take some of these decisions. For me, uh, so that's the first thing is, do I, need, do I need to be the person making that decision? The second is, how how important is that decision and should i do we need to make this decision now and what is the impact of this decision and and really for making a decision like this it's uh, depending on the the importance of it if that's something that's just you know low risk um and i wish i could have maybe you know just like have a, a little bit of, of some visuals but for me when it's low risk I can just make the decision and just execute. And even if I get it wrong, it's all right. Uh, I, I, I will. I, and one of the things that's very important is to recognize later that you made a mistake to your team and actually be open about it. I think it's extremely important. I read this article recently where the, the, the author was suggesting that we should keep track of all the mistakes that we made, all the decisions. And, and you know, at the end of the year, you start looking at what were the right ones and what were the good ones. And 
And what what was the process? What what is the reason why you got it wrong? And I think it would be very interesting because sometimes maybe it's an ego thing. Maybe it's because you don't have enough information. So I'm, I'm going to start thinking about doing that. And I started thinking about the decision that I made in the past. And I think it could be interesting um, to also develop yourself and be a better better leader. And then the decisions are really important for the business. Like right now, Adobe, we're building this growth organization. It's a it's a big business and, and there's a lot of a lot of teams that are excited to, to, to work on growth and you want to make sure that you don't screw this up uh, entirely. So, so for this, it requires a lot of observation and conversations with also other leaders from the industry and, and, and uh, going back to the data and really working on, on, on a framework, on a plan for even sometimes for a month, but taking the time to really put all the chances on your side. And, and I think observation is, is a huge one, uh, especially, I mean, for everything. But um, in growth, often you just think that, you know, you can figure it out yourself. But there's a lot of people, smart people, that maybe have figured it out or are, made some of the mistakes you made. And so looking, uh, go, going out, looking at the window, going out and talking to other leaders in the industry and say, hey, that's what I'm struggling with. And how, how did you do that? It's, it's very, very comforting sometimes to see that others have made the same mistakes and and hear how they solved it so that's that's kind of like my thought process yeah no i think that's really interesting and i may grab that link from you from that article that you mentioned yeah i have to do a follow-up episode if you decide to track the decision making habits that i think that would be i think that's a really great thing to do and a really interesting i'd be really interested to see the results of anyone doing that um, to see what kind of patterns they came up with uh just quickly and we're going to wrap up here if you had to, you know, attribute your success and you're very humble, but you are incredibly successful and top the game of what you do, mm-hmm. what habit would you uh, attribute most to this? I think uh, the the most important thing I, I I would say is probably the the hustle and the the ability to get people to rally behind a, a goal and a vision and and socialize it and 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 be a person that people want to work with. I think it starts there. You can. There's this quote, I don't know if that's, if that's true from the CEO of Netflix, where he says, you can't afford jerks, it's too expensive. And, and I think um, you, you can have some very smart people in an organization, uh, but if they're not people that people feel uplifting, it will be a toxic, uh, it will have a toxic impact. And so they might be extremely smart, driving a lot of sales. But you might have a bigger campaign impact by actually firing that person and having someone maybe a little bit less performing, but very uplifting and being a social person, someone that people feel excited working with and actually have everyone in the company have kind of like a morale boost. So I think for me, uh, it's uh, I think one of the things that uh, I I come from uh, social, I mean, I come from the community. I, I started when I when I started at Adobe. I, I had a blog and I was really involved in the community. I wrote some books and I I was a teacher. I was teaching programming uh, in a, at school and so I've always been sharing things uh, and writing articles, writing books and and what I do uh, in what I've done in my job is really communicate and communicate and and really provide how to put this. Yeah, get people excited around around uh, around a vision, and uh, and also help people be part of it, and also be successful uh, in in their in their own way. And I think what happens is naturally 
you you can you can lead because people get excited about uh, you know a vision and then and then you can start building your team and so, so often what I tell my 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 reports uh, or f- people around that I've conversation with is don't really care you don't you shouldn't really worry about uh, you know getting credits for what you do sometimes people get, can get worried it's like oh you know I'm doing all this good work I'm afraid of not being really rewarded for that and I and I say you know good leaders good product managers or good leaders or uh, whatever you do and I, I can I would say for product management <laughs> my my kind of like um, how to put this what's the best word to express that but my for me the foundation is you give uh, you give credits and you take blame uh, and that's extremely important and and by by doing this, you get a lot of trust, a lot of respect, and naturally, you'll be able, I think, to lead. And the, the other thing I wanted to say is being vulnerable. And that's something that it took me a long time to figure out what made leaders that I would see inside, outside in, uh, in my career, what made leaders great leaders. And for me, it's really uh, the people that can become vulnerable and, and expose themselves and, and taking risks. And I think that's something that we don't talk often enough, and maybe it's something I, I should write about, is how important it is to be vulnerable in your decisions. Because I think vulnerability is what gives authenticity and what ultimately gives your team a sense that you are a human being, that you are like them, that it's you have some power, but at the same time with vulnerability. And I think it's something very subtle, but it's something very interesting to think about. No, I think that's a really interesting. I, I haven't heard it quite framed like that before. So now I have to ask you, do you have being vulnerable as part of what makes a good leader? I think we can have a whole episode about that. I think that's such a great topic. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example about that? Because I think a lot of people would have trouble doing that, myself included. Uh, so do you have an example of when you've done that or tip to be able to make yourself a little bit more comfortable with being vulnerable with your team? I think, yeah, I think it starts with being able, you know, it's, it's so tempting to go in a meeting and not really have an opinion. It's like, well, oh yeah, this is a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Jennifer, what do you think? Oh, okay. Yeah. And then you really never take a stance in saying, okay, you know what? I think this is great. But uh, what do you guys think, like, given with all the feedback you guys provided, why don't we do this? And if, you know, if, you know, if the, if there's someone to blame, it's going to be me, but we're going to make, we're going to do this and we're going to figure it out. And, and I think generally people are like, okay, let's do this. And the fact that you openly say, we might be wrong, but we're doing this because we're going to be learning. And you know what? Even if we, if we fail, that's all right. It's on me and I make this decision and we're going to do this it gives you so much social capital with the team because they feel like you're taking a risk and and then at the same time giving some air cover to your team. And that's huge. And so I, I really think it's important to be able to make these decisions, back to decision question, take risk, expose yourself because, yeah, ultimately at the end of the day, you, you can't you can't progress if you're not making these decisions. And so for me, when I was a product manager, it was acknowledging that I didn't have the responses. I remember when I, I wrote an article a long time ago about product management, where it was like my top 20 advices on how to be a good product manager. And I learned so much. But one of the things I think 
I, I think I got right back then. I got a lot of things wrong, but one thing I got right was uh, you have to be able to say in a meeting, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't, I, it's, I don't know. We're, but we're going to figure it out. And being able to say, I don't know, instead of, well, you know, I think we should do, or where literally everyone in the room uh, know it's bullshit. Just saying, I don't know, also makes everyone feel like you're authentic. And so, so yeah, so it's, uh, that's something I try to do. And, and uh, right now at Growth, we're doing it a, for Creative Cloud, bigger scale, much more risks. I try to be as open about about things, and and uh, and I think that's I think people appreciate that. Yeah, no, I think that's. I'm just going to try to sum up that very quickly because it was so good. Now I wish we had another hour to talk. But one, don't hire jerks, and if you're a jerk, just stop being a jerk. <laughs> I think that's just pretty good. Uh, general advice. And if you ever do figure out how to make people not jerks, I'm pretty sure you'll be an overnight billionaire. <laughs> the second the second thing is, and this is a huge one, is to be vulnerable. As a, Whether you're a leader or you're not a leader, if you don't know something, you can just say, you know what, we might be wrong, we'll figure it out. I think a lot of people make decisions, we think, oh, they just know what to do. But ultimately, if you ask them, you know, talk about the decision three years ago, like, oh, I had no idea. I was just hoping we could figure that out. But actually just telling and sharing that with your team, it builds such social capital. And if you don't know something, just say you don't know. And it's the same thing, my background's law. When you're coaching someone for, you know, you know, for a deposition or trial, if you don't know something, you say you don't know. Right. It's the same thing. If you don't know, just say it. It's not that big of a deal. It's better to be authentic and honest and true than to try to make something up. I think that's such huge advice. Did I sum that up well? Yeah, and it, absolutely. And and I don't know. You know, in growth, a lot of the a lot of often you don't know, and it starts with I don't know, but we're gonna see, we're gonna see, um, we're gonna figure it out. We're gonna discover. We're gonna get some data. What's you know, you need intuition, and and you mentioned that in the past. You know, product sense, product intuition. Often people get scared when you say we're gonna be testing things because they feel like they're their vision or intuition or gut feel is going to be taken away. It's all right. We, it, it, you don't build a Airbnb uh, from A-B testing. You, you build Airbnb or Adobe because one morning you say, hey, you know what? There's a problem with storage files. I think there should be a better way. Or I think there's probably a better way to you know, draw and design on, on a computer and, and you create Illustrator. But it's along the way, being able to say, I don't know and, and test and, and is, is, is really important. Otherwise, it's, you end up doing this very dangerous dance of gut feel driven uh, vision where I think also today in the, in the world we live in, we're building products for the world and you're not the world. So it's very important to reduce the risk by, by testing and, and saying, I don't know. Uh, otherwise, and most of the time we're, we're, we're wrong. So it's important to say, I don't know. No, I think that's huge. And I think that brings me to talk to Brian Balfour. I think he did a piece a while back, but basically the three ingredients, you know, or the four ingredients when you're running tests, it's really quantitative data and qualitative data. And the third is gut instinct. Yep. It's like they're a trifecta and used together instead of one in isolation. And then you test what your guess is based on those, that trifecta. Exactly. Yeah, and you brought up Airbnb, which I think is a great example to kind of close things out because Brian Chesky, one of the co-founders of Airbnb, actually said, you know, they didn't build Airbnb by A-B testing, which 
some people I think would like to believe, but they had an early customer visit, a follow me home, and they got handed the 10-year product roadmap from one customer at follow me home visit. So I think that's a great example uh, and a good way to end here. Thank you so much for coming on here today. I have about 20 more questions that I want to ask, but I think maybe we'll have room for maybe another episode in the future. And I think we got sometimes the unanticipated consequence we let the show go where it goes is some fantastic career and leadership and management advice as well. Vulnerability and saying, I don't know, and some great criteria for you know helping make decisions because no one has the perfect process for that. It's all about finding what works for you and learning what's worked for other people. So thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure, Ashley. So um, I hope it's going to be valuable to everyone. And thanks again for having me. No, I have no doubt that it will. And a lot of the resources we mentioned in here, we'll make sure to link up for show notes. Good luck on your meeting later today. And thank you again. Thank you. Bye-bye.